HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director at Heritage Radio Network, and Katie is out once again this week, but I am joined by Hannah Forden, our Program Manager. Happy Thursday. Happy rainy, gray, but sort of spring-like Thursday. It's kind of nice to be in the studio when it's raining, though. It's cozy, Mm -hmm. and there's, like, you know, mood lighting, and we get to watch people eat pizza. Drink fancy wine. There's a fancy wine thing happening at Roberta's. I would highly recommend coming to that. Looks great. We have our engineer, Jeet, in the booth. Hello, Jeet. He's waving. He's our quiet engineer. Hello. There he is. (laughs) And our guests today, we're very excited. They're longtime friends of the network. We have Kate Cox and Joe Fassler from the New Food Economy. Welcome, guys. Hey. Thank you. You guys have been on the radio before, um, but we're very excited to have you on Happy Hour for the first time. We're psyched yeah, to be here. I didn't I didn't kind of know this was a thing and now I feel resentful <laughs> that we didn't do happy hour every other time that we were on the on the radio. I have a glass of beautiful orange wine in my hand and I'm very happy. Yes, happy hour is always accompanied with a happy making beverage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's working. Mm-hmm. It's helpful. Um, we're going to talk a lot about new food economy and um, this is a happy hour where we ha- we're going to have a little bit of like heavier topics, but it's still going to be very happy to me because um, I am always fascinated by everything that the new food economy is putting out there. It's one of my go-to places to find out what's going on in the world of food and oh, how thanks. everything on my plate is affected by politics and weather and <laughs> a myriad of other factors in the world. Um, so we're going to get to that in just a moment. 
First, I have a quick announcement. Um, we've been saying it a little bit, but Taste Washington is coming up on March 28th through 31st. It's going to be in Seattle. And um, if you're there at Taste Washington, look out for our own Katie Moslin Wadler and Sam Ben Ruby, the host of The Great Nation. They are going to be on hand um, to interview some winemakers, drink some wine, and uh, go up to them and ask them all about Heritage Radio Network. We're excited to be doing some West Coast stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, so next up we have a few of our headlines, and Hannah's going to kick it off. Okay, so earlier today, one of our amazing former interns and food studies graduate, uh, Claire Alsup, was the guest on A Taste of the Past with Linda Palaccio. Um, they talked about Claire's in-depth study of colatura di alici, an Italian fish sauce made with fermented anchovies. Um, and until the 1990s, the product had never been bottled or sold, but now there's global demand for this super local specialty. Um, and Claire spent several months in Sitara, a small town on the Amalfi Coast, examining the history and process of colatura di alici, which I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of. Um, and she was sort of thrust into the middle of this small town's debate. So that's going to be super interesting. Be sure to tune into that if you're a food history buff. Um, on a special episode and highly caffeinated episode of Life's a Banquet, Breton and Zara were joined by Dana Cowan of HRN Speaking Broadly. They talked about all things coffee and they learn about the woman who was behind the invention of the coffee filter. Another angle of food history, if you like food history, is Life's a Banquet. Don't miss out on that. They also ate tiramisu on air, which mm. Hannah got to have some of after the show. It was so good. I was really hungry. We were gearing up for our ladies' night party, and I got like a little sugar and caffeine buzz, um, which was very well needed and very delicious. And uh, this week on The Speakeasy, we meet author and spirits educator and consultant Shannon Mustafer. Um, they talk about her book, Tiki, Tropical Cocktails, which debuted on March 19th. And she shared with uh, Southern Damon her thoughts about the craft, finding and cultivating your own voice, and of course, the most important ingredient in tiki drinks, rum. Rum. Um, at the top of the show, you heard a little bit about uh, our current episode of Meet and 3 that's out about borders. And I just wanted to tease that tomorrow we have a new episode dropping. It's a little bit different than other episodes of Meet and 3 where we have very different stories that are thematically linked. Tomorrow, uh, we went on a trip to Newark recently. And tomorrow, our show is about our trip to Newark. There's a lot more going on in Newark than you might imagine. There's indoor farming. There's the most incredible school lunch program that I've ever seen. There is um, total like food and beverage nerds that are doing some incredible things. That's all I'm going to say. Tune in tomorrow. You'll never see Newark the same way again. Yeah, Newark might be the future for all of us, which is something I never thought I would be this excited about. Kate and Joe are thumbs upping. What you guys have thoughts about Newark? Maybe not. Well, first of all, they have an incredible row of Portuguese restaurants, like right off the train, right? We went there. We went Fabulous. to, we went to Caseria Ebom, I believe that's how you say it. If that's the one that people go to, I think that's probably the one. It's I've a, been to. like a charcuterie shop. Yes. Oh and incredible my God. seafood on that stretch. So, um, and you know, Aero Farms is there and that, mm-hmm. that ginormous facility. But I think Joe and I are always looking for a way to afford to live on the East Coast. So, you know, there's always like a range of, yeah, there's a range of cities in play there. Newark? Sure. It was very, so we went to visit Gil, who runs All Points West Distillery. I'm giving away a little bit more. But he's fascinating and is just a total 
the most knowledgeable person about spirits and the historical link between Europe and American spirits. And he um, talks so much about how he was living in New Orleans for so long, but that he loves Newark because it has in some way some of the same feel of like a mid-sized city and that he's very close to um, New York. And the, the reference, All Points West Distillery is a reference to the original like train terminal that most uh, Ellis Island immigrants would have gone to in Newark and then dispersed throughout the country. So very interesting stories uh, to be told in Newark. And we have four of them and I'm sure there are a lot more. Yeah. Ooh, it's going to be such a good episode. I'm very excited. Um, all right. Those are our headlines. Uh, next up, Kate and Joe. Um, Kate is the editor, and Joe is the features editor. Is that the correct titles, guys? Sure. Yeah. At New Food Economy. Let's just start off, since you haven't been on Happy Hour before, tell us what is the New Food Economy, and, and what can people ex- expect to find on the website? So let's see. Okay, first, first, newfoodeconomy.org. We'll get that out of the way. Tick that box right <laughs> off. Um, and uh, so we're a, we're a nonprofit newsroom. We're based in New York City. We have a staff of seven reporters and editors, actually soon to be 10. We're, we're starting to grow, which is wonderful. Wow. Um, and we investigate the forces shaping how and what we eat. So um, exactly what you said as we started talking, which is that we look at the, the politics, the power, the money, behind our plates and make those connections for readers and we write a lot of news because food makes a lot of news right now Mm -hmm. Um, whether that's policy or natural disasters or federal food assistance we're kind of all up in it yeah or zombie deer disease (laughs) okay zombie deer disease I'm going to make a plug for that yeah Yeah, I'm going to make a plug for that story because it's crazy it was written by our staff writer H. Claire Brown Um, and it is actually a a phenomenon that's affecting deer out in the Midwest and the West. And I forget if it's it's a pathogen. It's similar to uh, mad cow. It's a prion-based disease that affects the brain and makes these deer act crazy. So I have a confession to make. I, on two occasions in my life, have eaten uh, like venison heart, raw venison heart, tartare. Uh, It's a superstition thing. I won't go into it. But after eating them one time, it was like wow. a couple years ago, and it was like a terrible flu season. And I think I just got like the flu, but thought like I had gotten zombie deer disease from like eating raw deer. Oh I can understand how you would have made that <laughs> mental leap. The good thing to know is, even though it's I feel like I'm getting it just sitting here. <laughs> we, we might actually it's have It's airborne. It. We've all had it this whole time. <laughs> We're sitting in a little shipping container. Um, actually, humans, it cannot be transmitted that oh. way from, from deer to human. Although, fair, fair enough that you were concerned about that. Well, that's a relief. I don't want to be a zombie deer. No, we don't want to be zombie deer. Uh, and they ha- and it's a very tragic and awful and swift death for affected animals. Oh. And and they do sort of drool and get crazy-eyed, and I think that's where they get the name from. Yeah, there's from. stories of them just like running around in circles around people's oh. houses and stuff. Like they get crazy. It's quite distressing. Wow. And I will say that in the world of it bleeds, if it bleeds, it leads, our version of that is the zombie beer deer story <laughs> because that story drove so much traffic to this mm. website. I can't. Anything I can't with zombies. I think people Pretty were just much frantically zombie. Googling it and yeah. being like, Gotta know. Happening. Gotta know yeah. what this is. You just is. get the Walking Dead crowd that's like, oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that keyword. <laughs> um, I, I want it, speaking of, uh, meat making a real big jump from venison to uh, other types of meat but tell us about the upcoming event you have um the meat summit sure so this we are um 
doing a summit called Raising Meat at Texas A&M University. In, um, the, the program is really April 1st, April Fool's Day Summit we've got going on. Oh, boy. And um, basically, this is, this is really to explore, um, you know, the, the process of raising meat in the 21st century. So we're, gonna, we're, we're kicking it off in uh, grand fashion with a kind of, you know, conversation between, um, you know, someone representing uh, regenerative grass-based ranching, a kind of more conventional, you know, corn, you know, grain-based uh, approach, and then a, a cell-cultured uh, guy. And then we're just going to let them kind of have it out on stage and then go from there, you know, through the, all these other topics of animal husbandry, um, antibiotics, uh, media, and how the media talks about meat. We're going to try to kind of hit all the buttons. So uh, we're really looking forward to it. It's the first summit we've done. Um, Texas is always a good time. And, uh, you know, Texas A&M has one of the best sort of meat science departments in the country. Um, so we're excited to have some participation from the faculty there. Yeah, because so Texas A&M is a land grant university. And um, we could talk a little bit about land grants and like the historical implications there. But there are kind of uh, there are people on both sides of it that are like there's so much good work being done by extension programs at land grants. But also they in many ways do kind of push forward like big ag. Um, in some cases. So why was it important for you guys to do this program specifically at a land-grant university and include people working there in this conversation about meat? That's a good question. Why, why, did, why did we want to do this, Joe? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, first of all, it had a lot to do with location, right? Mm -hmm. So even though we're based in New York, we have a pretty significant readership in the middle part of the country. We have a good Texas readership. And so we wanted to be where we wanted to be closer in conversation to the people who are growing the food we're talking about. Um, and also, we, I think it was a challenge in some senses, right? Whether we could host a conversation like the kinds that we have on our pages all the time um, that brought lots of stakeholders, stakeholders into the, into the conversation, but to have it at a traditionally um, large-scale agriculture-focused school. And, you know, I won't lie, it's been challenging to put it together. There's a lot of deeply held positions. There's pretty intense politics. And we keep persisting in having this meat conversation because, frankly, our readers are interested. And the meat processing sector, production, all of it is somewhat enigmatic. And I think people are deeply, deeply curious about what it means to eat meat in this country today. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, let's go to the center point of that conversation and see if we can lure people there that we want to be part of that conversation. So maybe it was in part a challenge. You know, we could have held it on on a, you know, a grass-based ranch or something like that, but but it felt important to hold it in the place where people are having those kinds of conversations on the production side. And yeah. so that's that's one of the primary reasons we chose it. Yeah, I think this was a lot about kind of breaking out of silos. So in part that was for us, you know, as a New York-based newsroom, um, we do try to get out as much as we can, but that, you know, a lot of our coverage, unfortunately, skews towards the sort of Northeast Corridor because that's where we are. So a big part of it was like, let's get out of our own little bubble of New York City and, and go somewhere really different and, and see what the concerns are there and just, and just talk to people. I think that was part of the genesis. Um, but it was also about, you know, uh, not, not, uh, trying to set up a venue where people are preaching to the choir. You know, you go to a lot of food events and, and, and everyone's kind of already on the same team. 
Um, and this is this is really not that um, the one the one uh, uh, guy we have who's the president of the Cellular Agriculture Society. He's like we've we've kind of been joking. We're like, do you have your security detail? Like, are you good? Um, and and you know it's a joke, but but really the, we this rep, this event represents people from really different factions from who have really different. Um, approaches to uh, what meat should look like, what what agricultural production should look like, what the world should look like to a degree. And, and I think that's that's a little challenging and uneasy, you know, in some ways. And it's not what you often get at a food conference. But I think what's exciting for us is to get these people in the same room, having them have discussions where they're, you know, there may not be so much common ground at first. And, and maybe, maybe they'll find some, or at least we think there'll be some uh, really worthwhile conversations. And I should say, like, contradiction and conflict is what we sort of live for, right? So food conferences can often be a little bit benign. And if so we gave a lot of thought to, like, what would a new food economy food conference yeah. actually look like? Well, it would look like the kinds of stories we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we like to be in the center of that narrative where folks are trying to hash out these these complicated ethical questions and complicated production questions. Yeah, and, you know, in a way, I think it was it was necessary. This is our first sort of big, bigger event, but... Um, you know, we're not an advocacy publication. Um, and I think that's something when people are sort of familiar with, you know, is, is, is a lot of food media, especially on the nonprofit side, sort of skews towards a, a specific sort of uh, viewpoint. And we really don't do that. I mean, we want to make sense of it all. We want to include different viewpoints. We want to be as objective as possible. Um, and I think this event is really in that spirit, you know, of just convening a, a bunch of different voices and, and kind of letting them jostle together the way we do on the page. I'm excited. I wish that I could be there because I am sure there's going to be a lot of uh, passionate viewpoints. In that the room. is what we're hoping for. Yeah. yeah, we will have failed if that's not what happens. Well, based on so, Kate, last year you um, were part of an event at the Slow Food Nations Leadership Summit. I believe it was a summit. Yes. And it was a sort of similar topic. It was meat. It was part of you guys at a meat month last year. Um, and there were a lot of different people in that room. There are a lot of different people involved in slow food. You had someone, I believe, from Neiman Ranch who has a very, you know, they're, they're a bigger farming operation, some very firmly held viewpoints. And you had people who are kind of on the more like regenerative agriculture purist point of view. And although it's, you would think at Slow Food Nations, everybody's on the quote-unquote same team. But even within that, there's a lot of differing opinions. And I can't imagine uh, that room compared to, like, a land-grant university where you have, mm-hmm. like, very old-school type of this is how we farm, this is how we'll always farm. Um, but on that note, do you want to talk a little bit more about meat month and kind of what that was about yeah and that was interesting because it was somewhat more on the consumption side so that that originated from um a project that we did with the author the cookbook author uh lynn curry from the northwest who'd written us a, a cookbook actually on kind of grass-fed and how to how to cook with grass-fed uh, beef um and we got friendly and she pitched a story about the conscious carnivore conflict essentially And I said, you know, let's do it, but let's do it as though we're looking into everything that people bring to the table, literally, when they want, when they're consuming meat of any kind. Um, And what, you know, the ethical issues, the labeling issues, the pricing issues, and let's kind of pick five case studies across the country. So she did this, you know, extraordinary amount of of, um, kind of focus grouping and finding the right 
prototypical meat eater people who were dealing with an ethical issue or and how they had figured out how to do it um, and how to deal. You know, that from everything from total abstention to I eat it and I'm, and I'm not distressed about it. That piece was the beginning of a month's worth of coverage on meat that we looked at from every angle. We looked at the myth of grass-fed labeling, not that it's not accurate, but that it doesn't necessarily convey what we think. I should, Joe's looking at me because Joe wrote that piece. Um, you know, when we did Q&As with experts and we brought folks in to just host the conversation for a month in July, and we pegged it to our appearance at Slow Food Nations where we had a similar conversation. And you're very right in the sense, I really didn't know what to expect because that's a high kind of you know, those those folks aren't food curious. They're like food exactly. intense. Um, and so I didn't know what to expect. And the one thing I remember from that conversation most was that we asked at the beginning what conscious carnivorism meant. And you're right that it was a room full of everybody from, you know, USDA to hyper-specific, tiny, tiny, tiny regenerative ag projects. And I remember having this enormous whiteboard in front of me, and it was just Full of, you know, conscious carnivorism meant for some people looking at the way we inseminate our animals. Then it was about slaughter methodology that, you know, and I thought we were we were just going to be sort of touching on the spiritual heart centered nature of meat <laughs> consumption. And it turned out to be like, well, if we're going to call it conscious, it's got to include this and this. So that was the first time that we really had a sense like, OK, there's this is bottomless, right? And people's questions about it are infinite. And so let's keep probing. And and we, you know, meat and the meat processing sector is it's almost a kind of subbeat for us. We cover it a lot and those stories deeply interest people for for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. So we continue having that conversation and when it came time to host an event, it was like let's 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 do this again There's and more see here. what happens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, it oh, sorry. It seems like a good microcosm for talking about a lot of, like what you were saying, that more and more recently food news is tying in with every other kind of news, whether it's weather, political. And so especially with the climate change issue, I mean, I think it's like it's got this emotional core that kind of gets to the heart of how people feel about a lot of other issues. Absolutely. Yeah. So and that's really like, I think that was very eye opening for us. So just... um you know, a lot of the food journal traditionally, you know, it's it's been like eat this, not that, and I think sort of intuitively we've always tried to stay away from that because we're we're journalists, not advocates, and we don't want to tell people to, to do. But for me, what was so eye opening about this experience was just how, um, just the wonderful subjectivity of everybody's specific personal decisions and how each person had really just kind of found their own way to make sense of like the messy prospect of meat eating. Um, and you know, some people had welfare issues. Some people had specific agricultural methodology issues. I remember one, one woman stood up and with tears in her eyes was like, I just can't afford to buy the thing I know is right. What do I do with that? And so I think that's it's become uh, a real part, I think, of, of what we try to cover is not just the methodology and the differences between them that we try to lay out 
those things as objectively as we can. We also try to include in, in what we write about the, the sort of human experience of navigating these intensely fraught emotional issues of trying to eat well, whatever that means for you. Um, and I think, you know, we think that that's a, a subject that's really worthy of attention and focus, and it's something that we really care about. So this was a wonderful opportunity for us to do that and just get a room together of people to talk about, like, all their all their freaky meat issues, you know, which of which I think we have many. Freaky meat issues. Yeah. Oh, my God. Freaky meat. That, that should yes, be the title of a new show. That's yeah. a dance party, for sure. <laughs> um, one thing that I think ties in kind of to this is specifically kind of how climate change is affecting a lot of the farmers and you guys do an excellent job of covering that one of the most recent ones is uh a story featuring a story about what's happening in nebraska right now for people who maybe aren't keeping a close tab on the middle of the country the corn belt can you guys talk a little bit about what's going on in nebraska yeah I i would say swiftly moving is the way to describe that story i mean essentially you know an unusually insanely cold winter in the midwest had um you know left behind really uh, intense snowpack. And that was true in South Dakota. It was true in Nebraska. It was true in Iowa. And for Nebraska in particular, recent rains that were more than the usual amount, which could have been, you know, absorbed um, by the soil in any other time, kind of prompted just an absolute deluge of flooding. And, you know, it's been true. So, So there are, God, we just we just covered this this afternoon in news actually right now um still enormous number of counties in Iowa that are declared disaster areas but what Nebraska is facing in particular is a colossal amount of damage to the agricultural sector to agricultural infrastructure grain silos storage um and also to the the roads and highways, certainly 200 miles, we reported this afternoon, 200 miles of roadways have been destroyed in Nebraska and railways. So it's affecting kind of absolutely every aspect of moving food in and out of the country, not to mention damage to homes and lives lost. Um, And so that, you know, and it's expected to possibly continue. I mean, certainly the recovery will be intense, but I think uh, over the next few days, they're expecting more rain. Wow. and yeah, so that's a that's a quickly moving situation. And it's the time of year, you know, of course, where the decisions that farmers make and the weather that they experience, you know, significantly impacts the rest of their season and their, you know, their ability to plan or whatever they're going to harvest. And so uh, the the thought seems to be that this could be really impactful, not just to, you know, the economics of, of the sort of agricultural heartland, but to, you know, the the amount of. Of, of food we've we've got on hand, you know, this this time around. So we'll see, but it's yeah. it's a pretty dramatic situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so on that note, let's take a quick break. Let's top off our wine glasses. Yes. Um, yes. And then we're going to come back, talk about a few more of the things going on at New Food Economy, and then play a little bit of trivia. So we'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio has plenty more. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I'm the host of Feast Your Ears here on HRN. My show explores the world of food through storytelling. Every week, I talk with people inside and outside the food world about how experience has shaped what they eat and cook. You can find Feast Your Ears wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. 
My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Thank you, Roberta's. Woo! We love Roberta's. We love you. Um, all right, we're back with Kate Cox and Joe Fassler. Uh, another story that I want to talk to you guys about that's kind of part of an, a, a bigger bigger issue is you guys wrote about um, the Roundup lawsuit and the fact that the... Um, the, the um, what's the, the word of... I'm looking for a word of... The jury found it to be, or the, yes. I don't know if it was a judge or jury found it that it was a carcinogenic and yes. that it was directly responsible for uh, one farmer, not Hod- Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah. So let's talk about that, and I also want to ask about um, other lawsuits happening in uh, North Carolina where they have found that it is the farmers, like the CAFO farmers' fault that pol- the pollution caused mm-hmm. by the CAFOs um, are making are like a direct threat to people's health. So do you guys see this being part of like a larger trend of um, lawsuits actually working in favor of people affected by negative farming practices? Oh, wow. My, the optimistic side of me says yes. Um, but, you know, I should, I should hedge a little bit by saying that for every one of these lawsuits that is somewhat unprecedented um, in its outcome, for instance, there's an equal one on the other side that's upholding, um, you know, or, or putting caps on nuisance damages or upholding ag-gag laws in a particular state. So it's, you know, that's the paradox of the food system, I guess. The, you know, Claire, uh, our staff writer Claire said yesterday as we were covering the news of, of, um, of the finding in the, in the Roundup trial, I didn't think we'd ever see this in our lifetime. Mm. And I kept that stuck with me. Like that's been sort of in my brain rattling around for two days thinking about that. That it is true accountability. Um, to start. It's it's still, you know, that there's this is really, really early stage of something like eleven thousand lawsuits in the pipeline related to glyphosate based weed killers and the effect it might be having on public health. Um but I do think that there are that we are equally in an age of accountability as much as we are in, in a post-fact and post-truth age. You know, that there, there are two forces pushing together that I think we can see. And the food system is an incredible place where those kind of play out for us. Um, so I think there's as much demand for, um, for, for public health accountability especially as there might be for keeping things exactly the way they are and making sure that the law supports that. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, precedent is a is a big thing when it comes to the law, and you know, even to some of these civil suits. And um, I, I do think that both cases have the uh, potential to really open the floodgates. I mean, that does seem to be happening in in North Carolina. You know, with these nuisance suits about um, about the smells and just the you know the horror of living you know in some of these uh, locations. So. Um, I, I don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, one of the experiences that I had, um, this was, I think, last year, listening to a public hearing in North Carolina about whether they should proceed with with some some legislation having to do with this. And it was so interesting to hear uh, how how 
how divided the local politicians were. You know, you had people um, who were coming up and saying, you know, my constituents, they can't breathe, they have asthma, they can't sell their homes, they're trapped. And then you had people, you know, also coming up and saying, like, literally, the the smell of pig manure is the smell of freedom. That's that's something that I, I heard somebody say. Like, this Oof. is America. This is economic opportunity. This wow. is everything we stand for. Yeah, you know, and so progress. when you take two positions that are so just freighted and and, you know, uh, just not willing to back down, it, 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 it really almost anything can happen. I think there's so much money involved. There's so much at stake. Um, and I, I think it's really anyone's guess. But I do think that um, that some of these, you know, legal successes we're seeing are kind of unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you know, I, I covered in Iowa a, a, a lot of people um, who, who had tried to launch these lawsuits unsuccessfully having to do with egg production there and you know flies bombarding their houses and just having to live and stench all the time and they they really weren't able to um to 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 be compensated the way they thought that they should be but this does seem to be sort of a new development and you know we'll be watching it really closely to see what happens a, a very recent thing that happened that I thought was interesting was I was listening to uh, an episode of Pod Save America and they're doing a really good job trying to get like great interviews with a lot of the candidates running in the Democratic primary. And Cory Booker, they interviewed him recently, unprompted, he brought up the situation in North Carolina with CAFOs and talking about how the complexity of actually these two people are, are against each other, but really they're part of they're all part of one system that's not working for anybody. Um, I thought that was very interesting, and I'm interested to see if that continues to be a part of his platform and anyone else's platform, how they're going to yeah. talk about food. On that note, the Green New Deal is a big thing. I'm not sure how much you guys have covered that lately and or how that might be playing into upcoming elections, upcoming politics. Any thoughts or things you can talk about as far as Green New Deal coverage? You know, we had a, a lot of editorial discussions about this. We did not cover it right out of the gate, in part because it's not formal legislation. It's a resolution. And what it really serves as is a sort of you know, in my view, at least, this, it serves as a kind of um, manifesto for what is quickly becoming very clearly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And that's a good thing in the sense that that their messaging is clear. I'm a policy wonk, so I always want to know what's it going to look like to reduce carbon emissions to zero in 10 years? You know, like, I mean, these these things have to be aspirational in nature and they have to be enormous in scope. Um, It's sexy, you know, the sexy candidates are are involved in it, the sexy Congress people are involved in it. But we haven't covered it in earnest because there's not a lot to say about it more than just here are the four or five kind of bullet points on this. Um, But I'm glad you brought up Cory Booker because he's really been interesting to us in the sense that, well, first of all, I don't know how you can become a candidate in, for the 2020 election without discussing agriculture, climate change, food, access, um, you know, the war on welfare, all of that. But Booker has made it a really stated intention that a significant part of his platform is going to be about antitrust and consolidation in the agriculture industry. That's subversive. I mean, whether it goes anywhere or not, it's subversive. And kind of pulling back the veil on who owns what and acquainting Americans with the massive power block in the center of the country is is 
pretty unusual. That's not the kind of thing we're used to hearing from candidates. So I'm psyched. I'm psyched in the sense that, good, finally, ag is on the table in a different way. As you know, I mean, we live for that. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's a Heartland Forum in, in Storm Lake, Iowa, at the end of this month that is specifically looking at antitrust, corporate consolidation, and that's fascinating. You know, I think so we're, we're sending a reporter out there, I hope, to kind of take the pulse there a little bit and get a sense of, of how much we might be looking to hear more about this as we yeah. lead up to 2020. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, we were just starting out with the publication in 2016, but um, we had a, a fairly sleepy 2016, you know, uh, when through the lens of politics, at least food was really not a big part of the conversation, almost shockingly absent from the conversation. Um, even, you know, even climate, you know, was was not a major part of it. And, and that's obviously really starting to change. Obviously, the Green New Deal, it's going to be a big part of the debate. Um, but I even think agriculture specifically is going to be part of it. And I think Cory Booker is a good example of a candidate who's done some really interesting work, um, you know, proposing bipartisan uh, legislations with people like Senator Mike Lee, you know, about from Utah, from Utah. I have to say that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, about you know this issue of 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 consolidation, and so uh, you know we've long thought, wow, there's a real political opportunity here to sort of bridge gaps between the urban centers and the agricultural heartland if you're willing to talk about this issue of like of like agribusiness monopolies, and people can really like see eye to eye on that. We know it from talking to sources, but I, I think I think there's some savvy politicians, Booker among them, who are going to really try to take advantage of that. And I think that could be very interesting for like the American political scene. And it's easy for them to draw parallels. I have to say that too, because the conversation about tech, the power of the tech giants in this country, Amazon, Google, that's something that almost any American has to be versed in at Mm -hmm. this point, if you're, if you're living on earth. So it's very easy to make parallels between the dominance of American tech companies and the opacity of them and to say to people, even if you're not familiar with the agriculture industry or you don't think about it at this level, understand that meat processing is dominated by four companies in this country. They control almost all of meat processing and getting people to think about it through the lens of of the tech giants and these conversations that we're having about how much power is too much power for an American corporation is, is, I mean... If I yeah. was if I was Booker's campaign manager, I would be saying that. Here's more like that, here's the messaging. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then also China's influence. He yeah. kind of hinted yeah. at that. And I mean, especially in related to, New, to North Carolina, the the insane influence that China has over our pork industry. I don't think maybe a lot of people are totally aware of. And I think that if he continues to talk about that with what, everything else yeah. going on with China will be very interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. My friend uh, Doug Bach-Clark wrote a great piece for Rolling Stone about this very issue, and his take was kind of like, China's exporting its environmental destruction to the U.S. Like, they, like the Smithfield, own, you know, Smithfield's own, is Chinese-owned. Yeah. Um, the The practices in terms of lagoons and stuff that they use in the US they won't use in China. Absolutely. So so the worst of their practices are actually coming here. I mean to me that seems like an incredibly politically potent thing to talk about. Uh, we covered that a little bit on Meet and 3. It's been a while, but it I think was, it's time to circle back cuz it, it's becoming more and more. It really is. And with we're just going to c- pair that with Newark and Cory Booker and 
and swine fever. Throw that oh in. Get that yeah. in the mix. Zombie deer yes. and swine yeah. fever. Yeah. What's next? Um, okay, really quick before we jump into trivia. Um, another meet and three story that we did recently was our independent grocery store piece. And Joe, I wanted to ask you, um, you were in that story, but is there anything on the radar for independent grocery stores? Anything new and exciting you've heard about um obviously the amazon news was very interesting and amazon is not coming to new york city anymore any ideas on how that will be good or bad for uh independent grocers in the city yeah um so this is something i've been thinking a lot about um i i have a big piece coming out uh that we're co-publishing with Long Reads um, about the uh, an architect. He calls himself a supermarket ghostwriter, um, and he his clients are um, small, you know, independent grocery chains with you know maybe from four to five stores to you know twenty or thirty stores, and and it's all about how he thinks they're going to survive by really doing everything Amazon can't do, which is focus on people. You know, the one store, one store that I visited had like, basically had a living room, had like a game room with, with like board games and, you know, a full restaurant and, and all of these things. It's like focus on the, um, the experiential aspects of what brings food together. And I think, I think, um, the, the grocery stores that survive are going to kind of start looking more and more like food halls Mm. um and so that's that's a trend that you know this piece is really talking about um and and uh i I do believe that there's some potential there for them to kind of serve as these communal gathering places if they Mm. think of themselves not just as a place to sort of stock up you know as and perform a chore but as places to gather and 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 delight in food and that kind of thing so that's where i think there's some some hope there i think i've seen some success with that um but the industry is changing extremely quickly. I mean, you, you've probably seen, or you may have seen the news, the Wall Street Journal reported that Amazon is actually launching a new grocery store, yes. not Whole Foods. Um, that's and, and actually, part of their strategy, it said in that article, was to just buy up um, existing small regional grocery chains. So that's where the locations are going to come from. So the challenges are vast. Um, Amazon's sort of, you know, uh, position in the industry is increasing rapidly um it's gonna be really interesting but if you're an independent grocer uh and i talk to these people they're extremely stressed out oh absolutely but i do think there is a lot of uh potential for them an opportunity yeah and it's interesting about the am we covered this recently too the amazon opening up other grocery stores is that while elizabeth warren is saying i want to break up the trust and roll back the merger if they open up their own grocery stores that are not whole foods how does that play into that there's Good a question. lot to think about. Yeah. A lot yeah. to think about. Again, that's not like, that's proposed, but, you know, if Elizabeth Warren wants to do it, then maybe she'll do it. So we'll Maybe find. I'll have to have another glass of wine and just, like, take that in. Yeah. Take it, take it with me. It's interesting. But yeah. I like that there's policy, like, thought about policy going in, like, oh, a ways to protect the consumer, because I think so much onus gets put in our, like, capitalist system, which is kind of falling to pieces, like the pressure is put on consumers like, well, if you don't like the way things are going, like don't shop at Amazon and don't yeah. do X, Y, Z. And it's like, but no, you have so to. Hard no, to we don't that. have a choice yeah. anymore. And yeah. so yeah. it really is left up to, it has to happen on the policy level. Like yeah. if we are going to protect smaller businesses, we are going to try to like keep our food system diverse. Like mm-hmm. it can't just be up to us as people who are spending, you know, <laughs> a few hundred dollars a week or whatever shopping for groceries. Like there's nothing we can do. So it's exciting, but I, I, I hope the ball keeps rolling in that direction that there yeah. will be some sort of checks. Yeah. 
Anyway. All right. Well, it's that time. We have a couple more minutes left. We're going to play a little bit of trivia in honor of the upcoming Raising Meat Summit taking place very appropriately at one of the South's finest land-grant universities and in honor of the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. Oh, God. Today's that, trivia nope, nope. is combining a few of my favorite things and hopefully yours. This is the mascots of the land-grant universities of March Madness. Ooh. Oh, we're going to fail. I can tell we're you already. Right. So, we're going to tank. So incredibly hard. Question number one is about Auburn University, my alma mater, and uh, who just recently won their first round of the March Madness tournament. Auburn University's mascot, Aubie, is known for his animated characteristics such as a strut walk, quick turns, head shakes, and exaggerated pointing. What kind of animal is Aubie? I'm going to guess uh, chicken hawk. <laughs> I was going to say Peking duck, yeah. so I guess you're like probably closer. That would be good. <laughs> well, I know because sometimes I troll you by saying war eagle. Is that? No, that's not. Where did what is that war is. eagle? That's just like what came to mind. Animal? I don't okay. know. <laughs> the correct answer is Abby is a tiger. Well, that's wow. so straightforward. That makes so much more sense. Yeah. Okay. okay. All, right, All right, question number two is right. about Purdue University. Contrary to popular belief, Purdue Pete is not the official mascot of Purdue. Instead, it is the Boilermaker Special, which is what Victorian-era machine? Wow. Oh, my mother is going to kill me. That's her <laughs> alma mater. Oh, Boilermaker. Um, a Boilermaker. What did they make in the Victorian era? Clothes? Bo- Boils? Boils. <laughs> uh, that is something they specialized in, actually. <laughs> Boils. The boiler maker. Um, I feel like it's a furnace or something like that, but I'm sure that, that yeah, okay. Think yeah. about a moving Noted. furnace. Oh, a, t- a train? Correct. Oh. Whoa. Cool. Lucky prey. It's a train. Um, and they, they like, Put him on like a like a like a truck, and they move huh. him around the campus, which sounds bizarre uh, to me. It's a sort of a sad mascot. <laughs> yeah, inanimate objects. Like the little engine right. that could. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Victorian okay. era train. Yeah. Question number three is about Michigan State. Michigan State's mascot is the Spartans. In 1943, MSU art professor Leonard D. Youngworth designed a statue for the University of a Spartan, which was cast in what material due to World War II rationing? So it wasn't like a metal, because they were using that for other stuff. What did he make his statue out of? World War II rationing. Clay? Close. Think about, like, an army. There's an army of this in, I believe, China. Oh. Yeah. I would think that would be... Wait, it's is not. It, is it porcelain or mm-hmm. plastic? It's not clay. Oh. Plastic. It's like ceramic. A, it's like a reddish color. Yeah, I thought that clay. was like clay though. Oh, terracotta. Correct. Terracotta. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I'm yes. sure that was sturdy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they moved him inside and replaced him with a bronze one, so it would be okay with the weather. Terracotta. Yeah. Okay. Question number four is about Iowa State. The Iowa State Cyclones are the athletic teams that represent the school. But since a cyclone is difficult to depict with a costume, the university's mascot is what bird named Cy? Ooh. Is it a cardinal? Correct. What? It's I lived a in Iowa for a few years, so on, <laughs> I picked that up on some Good subliminal job. in some subliminal way. You did. Yeah. Like something red. I thought that yeah. one would be really hard, yeah. and you nailed it. You've gotten two, Joe. The Don't last luck. one is about the University of Kentucky. The Kentucky Wildcats have three official mascots. 
Blue is a live bobcat that lives in an education center and does not attend games because, as we know, bobcats are very shy and don't like crowds. The wildcat... <laughs> I'm sure that's the only problem. <laughs> Antisocial. The wildcat is a costumed student who debuted in 1976, and the third mascot is a more recent addition. It's also a costumed student and is more is a more child-friendly wildcat who, quote, Wears his hat backwards, drinks Pepsi, and likes to party. What's his name? Bro cat. <laughs> Chad. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with Chad. I would agree. Uh, we got two votes for Chad. <laughs> we're gonna let them know that they should na- change his name to Chad. But his name is, and this is very funny because this is a cat that I had growing up. His name is Scratch. Hmm. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, that's, All right. That's well, our, we failed. The mascots of the Land Grant okay. Universities yep. of March Madness. And you guys, you won. You may not think you won, but you won. <laughs> I feel like it's good preparation for like small talk at the Meet Summit, though, because yeah. you are going to a Land Grant University. Like, and we, we should learn about yeah. mascots. I we just learned something cards. about your mascot. Yeah. Do you know yeah. A&M's mascot? I was terrified you were going to ask because I don't. It's really is, is this it the Aggie? It is. It's but an what easy is an Aggie? It's just it was a nickname. Actually, Michigan State before they were the Spartans were also the Aggies because it was a very common mascot for agricultural universities. But what like, does it look but what like? Is it, it's is not it, a marble. A it's not a thing. With, like, it's like it's a, just know. an ear of corn. Yeah. They call themselves the Aggies, but I think that their mascot is like some other animal. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe it's an agricultural extension agent. Yes. In the end, yeah, yeah. he Maybe has a clipboard and a hat. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a tractor and like a temperature gate. Yeah, tractor. Oh man. All right. Well, that's our show. Yeah. Thank you to Joe Fassler and Kate Cox from the New Food Economy for joining us and playing my bizarre round of trivia. This was so fun. Thank Thanks you. for this having so us. Fun. Come yeah. back anytime and uh, keep up the amazing reporting. I don't know what I'd do without it. Thank Genuinely. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thanks to our engineer, Jeet. Thanks to Hannah Forden, our program manager. Thank you, Kat. I'm Kat Johnson, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>